God, we uh, come to you this morning, Lord, as a church family. Lord, our hearts have been bombarded all throughout the week with various temptations, or we've been tempted to trust in other things, hope in other things, to find satisfaction in other things beside you. And so, Lord, we pray this morning, Lord, that you would refocus our hearts on Jesus. Uh, Lord, that we would find our hope and our satisfaction in him and him alone. And we ask, Lord, that you would use Daniel 6 uh, to do just that, that you would show us the greatness of King Jesus from this Old Testament book. And in this chapter, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. On the morning of November 12th, 1660, a young pastor walked into a small meeting house in England preparing to be arrested. He didn't notice uh, the officers that were right outside the building, but he didn't need to. Uh, A friend warned him that they would be coming, but he came anyways. He agreed to preach. The officers broke in right in the closing prayer, and they were looking for a tall man with a red mustache wearing plain clothes. They were looking for John Bunyan. John Bunyan closed his prayer, and the officers forced him from the house, a man who carried no weapon, just his Bible. Two months and several court proceedings later, Bunyan was taken from his family, taken from his church, taken from his job to serve one of the longest jail terms by a dissenter in England at that time. For 12 years, he would sleep on a straw mat in a cold cell. For 12 years, he awoke away from his wife, away from his four young children. For 12 years, uh, he wondered if he'd be ever released or executed or sent off into exile. But during those 12 years, John Bunyan wrote a book. He wrote a book about a little pilgrim named Christian on a journey to the celestial city. John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, which would later become one of the best-selling books written in the English language. This is one of my favorite books personally. I've been reading uh, one of the children versions uh, with my kids, and they love it. I commend it to you. But one of the things that I've learned about John Bunyan is that when he was arrested, he was actually given an ultimatum. They said, hey, if you stop preaching, if you remain quiet, you can be released and go back to your family. But if you refuse, you're going to be thrown into prison, and you could be sent off into exile, or you could be executed. Well, he said this when they gave him that ultimatum. He said, if any man can lay anything to my charge, either in doctrine or practice, in this particular, that can be proved error or heresy, I am willing to disown it, even in the very marketplace. But if it be truth, then to stand to it to the last drop of my blood." Bunyan was then 32 years old. He would not be a free man until he was 44. And even though he was separated from the comfort of his family, he was not separated from the comfort of his Savior. In prison, he said this, that Jesus Christ was never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen him and felt him indeed. I bring that up with you because about 2,100 years before John Bunyan, there was a man who had a very similar experience. His name was Daniel. As we learned last week, Daniel uh, was courageously faithful to God. He refused to compromise even in the face of persecution and death. We saw that last week. What a challenge for us to stand firm in the faith until the very end. 
And even though it's not recorded for us in, in the text, you have to wonder if after Daniel was rescued in the lion's den, if he would have said something similar as John Bunyan, that God was never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen him and felt him indeed. Now, as I've said before, I want to warn us today. I want to warn us about a pitfall as we study uh, the book and the life of Daniel. And the pitfall that I've been trying to to warn us about all along is uh, making Daniel the hero of the story, right? To, To put Daniel on such a pedestal that we walk out of this room saying, I want to be just like Daniel, right? Dare to be a Daniel, right? That, that can be the temptation for us as we think about the main takeaway of this book. And while on one hand, there are things about Daniel's life that are worth imitating, absolutely. But I want to make it abundantly clear once again that the main point of this book is not about Daniel. It's about Daniel's God, See, we hear stories of Daniel, of John Bunyan, and their courage and their boldness and their faithfulness to God, no matter the cost. And we are rightly inspired by those stories and those examples. But we must understand that the only reason why John Bunyan and Daniel and the countless Christians over the centuries have been so courageous that they were willing to sacrifice everything is because they knew something about the faithfulness of God that enabled them to go all in and risk it all because they were utterly convinced that God is faithful no matter what. See, God is faithful was not just some abstract theological truth for Daniel and John Bunyan. God is faithful is not some type of Christian cliche that we kind of throw around here and there. God is faithful is not just a cute phrase that you slap on a coffee mug. God is faithful was so embedded in the depths of their hearts that they went all in and risked it all because they were 100% convinced that God is faithful. See, Daniel knew something about God's faithfulness that I think we desperately need to hear this morning. That God's faithfulness is not just something to encourage or warm the heart, but God's faithfulness is something that propels and sustains fearless courage. In fact, I wonder if we uh, could have the opportunity to invite Daniel up here this morning. And we did kind of a Q&A with him. And I would ask him, hey, Daniel, I know that you, you, know, you lived 2,600 years ago in a different place, in a different context, but what would you tell the American church today about the faithfulness of God? What would you say uh, to Pennington Park Church this morning about God's faithfulness? And I wonder if we asked him that question, I wonder if he would share uh, three things about the faithfulness of God. In fact, three things that I want to share with us about God's faithfulness from Daniel chapter 6. Here's the first thing that I think we see from the text is that God's faithfulness does not shield us from hardship, does not shield us from hardship. Picking up where we left off from last week, this new law, this new policy uh, had been passed. This new law banned all prayers to all deities, to all gods uh, outside of King Darius for 30 days. But we learned last week that Daniel, in an attempt to stand firm in his faith, continued to pray, continued in, in his faith 
And he was so consistent, so faithful in his prayers to the Lord that these government officials who despised Daniel caught him in the act of praying. They brought Daniel in front of the king and they reminded King Darius of the consequences of breaking this new policy. Now, King Darius actually attempted to find a loophole in this law that he agreed upon, but he failed. There's nothing left he could do. So verse 16 tells us that Daniel, who was likely in his 80s at this time, was brought in and he was cast into the lion's den. Now, the den was probably more like a pit with an opening at the top. And as he's being thrown in, the text tells us that King Darius said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Now, these words are, are kind of moving. You know, we, we hear King Darius's heart for Daniel, his hope for Daniel. But Daniel wasn't resting upon the king's concern or the king's hope. Daniel was resting in the providence and the sovereignty of his God. See, one of the things I want to point out uh, in this text is the contrast between the powerlessness of the king and God's mighty power. This should have stood up to you as we read this morning, but if you notice, the king here, who's the most powerful person in the world, spent the entire day trying to find a way to free Daniel, and yet he failed. This is in direct contrast to the mighty power of God, which, spoiler alert, he does deliver Daniel. He saves Daniel. This teaches us that what man cannot do, God can. Now, another thing I want to point out, I think is also noteworthy, is that the pagan king knew that Daniel served his God continually, faithfully, and consistently. That should be a challenge for every single one of us. See, Daniel wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a preacher. He was a government official who was serving at the highest place of authority. And yet while he was conducting his duties, he was known for serving God faithfully and continually. Here's the application for us. No matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, you are called to serve God faithfully and continually because you don't know who else is watching. You have no idea the eyes that are on you as a follower of Jesus. And so serve God as you do those financial reports at work. Serve God continually as you serve in the hospitals, as you teach in the classrooms, as you do whatever it is that engineers do. Serve God faithfully and continually as you change those diapers, as you wash the dishes, because you do not know who else is watching. Now, one of the things that we've learned about Daniel's faith throughout these first six chapters is that Daniel's relationship with God was not crisis-oriented. In other words, when the hard times came up in his life, it wasn't as if he turned on the trust God switch. Okay, now I need to trust in the Lord. No, what we've seen is that the hard times when they came in Daniel's life just revealed that he had been trusting God all along. In fact, he trusted God day in and day out, continually and faithfully. So when those emergencies came, when the crisis came, he knew what to do. And so the decision to go to the lion's den had been settled many years earlier before this point in time. The cost had already been counted. To be untrue to his God was never an option for Daniel. See, church, character 
is not forged in the moments of adversity. Character is revealed in the moments of adversity. Remember last week, remember verse 10, when Daniel hears about the new policy, the new law? What did Daniel do? He did what he has always done. He went and he prayed. He obeyed God rather than man and demonstrated such devotion to God that this pagan king says, man, I hope your God delivers you. I hope your God, the God that you serve day in, day out, saves you and rescues you. Now, the the point that I want to emphasize in these verses is I want you to notice that Daniel's service and obedience to God did not somehow magically protect him from hardship. Daniel's ability to be courageously faithful to God did not somehow protect him from being thrown into the lion's den. No, he's still thrown in there and, and was presumably about to experience a horrendous death. So it's actually almost as if Daniel's obedience and, and courageous faithfulness to God led him into the lion's den. It actually led him into hardship and suffering. Now, wait a minute. That's not part of the deal in the Christian life. That's not what we agreed upon. Come on, God. That's not part of the bargain, unless it's in the fine print that we didn't read beforehand before trusting in God. No, the deal is, I follow you, and God, you protect me from everything that's hard and everything that's bad. Isn't that what we signed up for? That God, I'm godly, I do what's right, and in return, through your divine protection, you keep me and shield me from everything that's hard and everything that's bad. Now, unfortunately, some of us actually believe that. But Daniel didn't. Jesus didn't. Moses didn't. David didn't. The Apostle Paul didn't. And yet, some of us actually believe that the primary way that God blesses his children is by protecting them from everything that's hard and just gives them what they want. And for those who actually believe that, that is exactly why you are crushed when hardship and suffering come. Because you say to yourself, wait a second, God, this isn't part of our agreement. God, why have you forgotten about me? God, this is unfair. God, why is this happening? We go to the why questions instead of answering the who question. But church, what if, what if we actually believed that the primary way that God blesses his children is actually in the form of hardship? What if we actually believed in what the Bible says? What if we actually believe Romans 5, where it says that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope? What if God uses the hardship in our lives to produce something of eternal value? What if we actually believe James 1, where it tells us to consider it pure joy, not half joy, not minimal joy, not fleeting joy, but pure joy, true joy, everlasting joy. When what? 
when you're shielded from hardship, when you're protected from moments of the lion's den? No, James 1 says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. See, church, if we actually believe that in God's faithfulness, he does not shield his children from hardship, but uses it to produce something much more important than ease and comfort, he uses it to create and produce spiritual maturity, rock-solid character in the face of hardship. See, we, we struggle so deeply with self-sufficiency and self-reliance that it's hard for us to even see that. It, it's hard for us to understand that in God's faithfulness, he would actually use something so painful to produce something of eternal value. And I, I think God uses hardship. It, it it's almost becomes this blade in the hands of a perfect surgeon who conducts a much-needed surgery of the heart to produce something that, if we didn't have that surgery, would never be produced in our lives. Is it painful? Yes. Is he good? Always. Always good. I know that some of you are walking through a season right now that feels like a lion's den. And I wonder if you are missing what God has for you right now. I wonder if you're wasting this opportunity to grow because you're more caught up in, God, why is this happening? God, what about our ideal than pressing into the faithfulness of God and what he wants to produce in your life? We see Daniel trusting in the faithfulness of God because he understood that God doesn't shield his children from hardship, but allows it to happen to produce something of eternal value. Well, again, if Daniel's up here and he's sharing about the faithfulness of God, I think the second thing he would say is that the faithfulness of God is often manifested through his comforting presence. Now, not always and not only, but I think oftentimes God demonstrates and shows his faithfulness in and through his presence. Like notice what happens next in the text, verse 19, early in the morning, after a sleepless, anxious night, the king runs to the lion's den, runs to the pit to check up on Daniel, yells down there, wants to know if God had delivered him, if God had saved him. Now, this isn't in the text, but you have to wonder if Daniel paused for five seconds just for suspense, you know, maybe something I would have done or maybe Pastor Dustin. But he, he might have paused, he might not have, but verse 21 tells us that God, that Daniel responds back and says, I've been unharmed. There's not a scratch on me because God had sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions. Now, I know we've heard this story a dozen times in our lives, but do not allow familiarity to rob you of what a miracle this is, of God's miraculous deliverance, because there's someone else in the lion's den. Daniel is not alone. There's an angel of the Lord there. Now, we, we saw this in chapter three, didn't we? The fiery furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar's wanting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to burn, right? And he looks in there and he sees a fourth person there. It's an angel of the Lord, 
right? Similar here in this scene in the lion's den, and scholars believe that that, that was a, a pre-incarnate Jesus that was the Son of God who was in there, be an example of what theologians call a theophany or a visible manifestation or appearance of God to man. You think about all the examples of that throughout the Old Testament, there are dozens. You think about Jacob wrestling with God. You think about Moses talking to God in the burning bush. The point here is that God is with Daniel in the lion's den. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that God decides to manifest his presence once Daniel is in the lion's den and not before. Like God visibly and tangibly displays his faithful presence, his protective power when the trial for Daniel was the most terrifying, when he could almost smell the breath of the lions, when he could hear the lions roar, when when Daniel's faith was most stretched, that's when God, the, the creator and sustainer of life, could not be any closer to Daniel. Protects him and delivers him. It's almost as if God orchestrated this moment so that Daniel could experience the intimate presence of God. I think that we see this theme as well throughout the scriptures. God's faithfulness being displayed in and through his presence Think about the famous psalm, Psalm 23. David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Then he says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, I know this is a familiar psalm, but notice what David is saying here. David is saying, what I am going through right now feels so dark, so hopeless, so heavy, so uncertain that it's almost like it's this valley and death's shadow has been casted upon it. That's how dark it is. That's how uncertain it is. But then he says, I will not be afraid. He says, I will not allow fear to control or dictate how I'm going to live in this dark valley. Why? Because he says, God is with me. The faithful good shepherd is with him. Look, I know, I know for a fact that there are some of us in this room You are walking through a season right now that feels like the valley of death. It feels like a lion's den right now, whether because of stuff at work or at school or in your relationships or just the uncertainty of life. Maybe it's about your health. And look, maybe you need to be reminded this morning that just as Daniel was not left alone in the most terrifying, the most uncertain, the most stretching moment of his life, that neither are you. Could it be that God is sovereignly orchestrating this season of your life right now so that you could experience the depth and the intimacy of God's presence? 
that God is with you. We see the ministering faithfulness of God in and through his comforting presence. That God doesn't always take away the storms, but he promises to never leave us in the midst of it. Well, this takes us to the third and the final aspect of the faithfulness of God that we see in this text. And we see here that the faithfulness of God is what is behind the deliverance of God's people. This is what is driving the deliverance of his people. Because, of course, what we see here is that God chooses in this moment in Daniel's life to deliver him from the lion's den. This is a miraculous act of God's power and deliverance. But one of the things I want to point out here is the clear contrast between deliverance and destruction. Okay, this is a heavy reality, but this is also a theme that runs throughout the Bible. We see God delivering Daniel. And in verse 23, the king is happy, right? Daniel is removed from the pit. There's no scratch on him. But then look at verse 24. The king commands that the accusers of, the accusers of Daniel and their families be thrown into the lion's den and they're destroyed by the lions. They're eaten alive there. We see this deliverance versus destruction theme. Now, what are we to do with this theme? Well, Sinclair Ferguson provides, I think, a helpful word on this point. He says that in a fallen and sinful world, there's a somber side to the salvation of God's people. The deliverance of Eve's seed is always accompanied by the bruising of the head of the serpent. Christ delivers those who were subject to a lifelong fear of death by destroying the one who had the power of death. The dark side of Daniel's deliverance is the judgment that falls on those who had sought to destroy the kingdom of God, that they and their entire families, even wives and children, were cast into the den of lions and immediately attacked and devoured. Their gods were unable to deliver them from the lions, whereas Daniel's God had delivered him. So with deliverance, there's also destruction. And I think that this is even metaphorically pointing to the reality of the fact that God delivers and God destroys people for all of eternity. And the question that you have to wrestle with this morning is, are you in a position where God is delivering you in and through Jesus, or is your future one of destruction? That because of the reality of your sin, and the reality of the consequences of your sin and a just God, that the consequences is eternal destruction for all of eternity. Now, speaking of Jesus, Daniel should remind you of Jesus. That as we've been looking at the life of Daniel, and in particular chapter 6, Daniel and Jesus have a lot of similarities. Like as we're walking through the details of this text, this actually reminds us of someone else. Look at the similarities here, just even in chapter six, that both Jesus and Daniel prayed regularly, that both had spiteful accusers who sought to entrap them by means of their worship practice and faithfulness to God's word. Both had malicious crowds bring them to a pagan ruler and accuse them of violating the law. The ruler, judging them innocent, seeks to free them but eventually gives in to the crowd's desire and condemns them to death. Both Daniel and Jesus are said to have trusted in their God, 
that both had a rock that was placed over the, the pit or the lion's den for Daniel and then over the tomb of Jesus and sealed with a royal seal. At dawn, the king hurries to the pit as the women did to the tomb on Easter dawn. And both emerged alive. Daniel, who served the living God, and the risen Jesus, who himself is the risen one. See, church, we are meant to read Daniel 6. And for those who have trusted in Jesus, we are to conclude that Daniel is good, but Jesus is better. That Daniel is inspiring, but there's no comparison to King Jesus. And then those of us who are here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus, where because of your sin, your future is one of destruction. You are to hear the words of Daniel 6 and to conclude in your hearts, there's hope. There's hope. There's hope of deliverance. There's hope of, of forgiveness for your sins. There's hope of salvation because there is someone much better than Daniel and his name is Jesus. See, Jesus is so much better than Daniel. In fact, that's a really important principle as you're studying the Bible, in particular, the Old Testament. As you think about these different characters and, and these different symbols and the themes throughout the Old Testament, they point to Jesus and the reality that he's actually better. Tim Keller powerfully connects these Old Testament characters and themes with how Jesus is better. Let me give you a couple of examples. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the wilderness, unlike Adam in the garden, and whose righteous obedience is imputed to us. That Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain by wicked hands, has blood that now cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the better ark of Noah, who carries us safely through the wrath of God, revealed from heaven and delivers us to a new earth. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all that is comfortable and go out into the world to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. That when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God who took his only son on the mountain of Calvary and sacrificed him. And we can say, now we know that you, God, love us because you did not withhold your only son whom you love for us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Joshua, who leads us into a land of eternal rest and heavenly blessing. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for his foolish friends. Jesus is the true and better David, who is the ultimate victorious one, defeating the ultimate Goliath, the giant of our sin and condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast into the, into the belly of death for three days so that we could safely be brought in. 
Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. Jesus is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. And for our purpose here this morning, Jesus is the true and better Daniel. Having been lowered into a lion's den of death, emerges early the next morning alive and vindicated by God himself. Look, church, the Bible is not really about us, is it? The Bible is about Jesus. The Bible is not just about these men and women in the faith and how we need to just imitate them. No, all of these stories, all of these characters point us forward to Jesus, to King Jesus, and how he is best. Even in Daniel 6, yes, we want to stand firm in our faith. We want to imitate these aspects of Daniel. But Daniel and this scene here points forward to Jesus and how he is better. Even specifically, these lions here in the lion's den, that reminds us of another lion in the New Testament, that Satan himself, our enemy, is described as a lion in 1 Peter 5, 8, a roaring lion seeking to devour those around us. And yet 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ on the cross didn't just shut the mouth of the lion, he crushed the lion to death. That 2,000 years ago on the cross, Jesus, who took our place, paid our penalty, was thrown into the ultimate lion's den of death to defeat our enemy. And three days later, he raised to life, showing his victory over the grave, over sin, and over Satan himself. Look, why? Why did Jesus do that? It's because God is faithful. That God made a promise way back in the garden, Genesis 3, and he promised that there would be a descendant of Eve who would eventually come and crush the head of the serpent. And that through Jesus, he would provide eternal life, forgiveness of sins for all who trust in his son. And so how about you this morning? Have you been delivered from the sin of your life? Have you been delivered from the pits of destruction? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you turned from your sins and placed your faith only in Christ for your salvation? Like if you haven't, our prayer all week long is that you would do that today, that today would be the day of your salvation, that you would look to Jesus, that you would surrender to Jesus and put your faith in him and him alone. And if you want to do that today, we'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. For those of you who have trusted in Jesus, perhaps you find yourself facing a lion's den of a trial right now, just notice that Daniel entrusted himself to God. He didn't know the outcome. And yes, God may not deliver us in the same way as Daniel. He might, but he doesn't promise to always deliver us in the same way as he did for Daniel. But every follower of Jesus is called to entrust their lives to the one who judges justly. First Peter 2, I'll close with this, is a great call for us in the face of persecution. It says, but, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. That he, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What a calling for us, for us to know that when we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, when we follow the example of Jesus, so when we're mistreated, when we're persecuted, that we do not revile in return, because we know that God one day will make all things right again. So church, keep trusting, keep standing firm, keep holding on to the one who's actually holding on to you because he is faithful. Let's pray together. God, we give you praise for your faithfulness. God, we thank you that your faithfulness has endured for generation upon generation. We thank you for your word that reminds us that you have never broken a promise. God, you have a perfect track record. Lord, your faithfulness has endured for all time. And Lord, I pray, Lord, as we think about you being faithful, help us to understand how deep and how powerful that truth is, that it not only encourages us, but it should sustain us in having fearless courage. God, help our eyes to be fixed upon Jesus. We thank you for all that he is for us, that he is the only way for salvation. We give you praise for him in Jesus' name. Amen.